are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George with us from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the New Testament letters. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through chapter 6, which include the following three topics. Bride and Bridegroom of the Covenant, second, the Fourth Commandment, and third, the Armor of Christian Warfare. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George speaking about Bride and Bridegroom of the Covenant. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. God has been speaking about marriage from the beginning of human history. Throughout salvation history, he has been speaking of the institution of marriage, which God himself established at the beginning of time. Sacred Scripture begins with the creation of man and woman in the image and likeness of God and ends with the marriage or the wedding feast of the Lamb. Throughout Scripture, in fact in virtually every book of the Bible, God is telling us something about marriage, about its mystery, its institution, and the meaning that God has given it, and its ultimate end. So when we look at the second half of chapter 5 of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is an exhortation to husbands and wives about how to live marriage in Christ, he ties everything into the greater mystery, the nuptial covenant, that God has been speaking about from the beginning of time, the covenant, that is, between Christ and his bride, the church. If there are things in chapter 5 that we find ourselves struggling to understand, a perfect example of that would be what St. Paul says to wives about how they should be subject to their husbands who are head, as Christ is head, of his bride, the church. If we find ourselves perplexed by some of what he says, we have to understand that everything he says is said in light of the mystery of Christ and his church. That is why at the end of this section he says, this mystery has great significance and I am applying it to Christ and his church. 
God is the author of marriage. He is the institutor of marriage. God institutes marriage at the very beginning of time when he creates man and woman in his image and likeness. Now, if we go back to the book of Genesis, the very beginning, there are really two narratives of creation. They present slightly different things, but point to one in the same reality. God did not create man to be a solitary being. He created man and woman together, and he created each for the other, to be gift to the other. Now, by saying that God created each for the other, we are not saying that man or woman is half-made or somehow incomplete but they are created to be a communion of persons. Masculinity and femininity are complementary of each other. Man and woman exist in a complementarity of union. The respective perfections of masculinity and femininity reflect something of the infinite perfection of God. So man and woman say or express or reflect different things and yet reflect one and the same mystery of God. So in the beginning, in chapter 1, in that first creation account, God tells us that God created man and woman in his image and likeness. In his image, God created him. Male and female, he created them. This is all given to us in one verse. So we move from him, man, Adam, to male and female, to them. So already God is saying something about the one flesh union which man and woman are created for in the beginning. In fact, in the second creation account, God reveals man first. There is a way in which we must understand that man is first. We will even see the word man capitalized because the first Adam, created Adam, is a reflection of a figure of Christ, the man the first man, the first and last, the new Adam. So Adam is reflective of Christ. And what does Scripture tell us? That God tells Adam in creating him that it is not good for man to be alone. He says, I will make a suitable partner for you. Now the woman God creates is equal in dignity and freedom to Adam. She is not created beneath or below him. She is created from his side. God takes a rib. He creates woman from Adam's heart, so to speak. He creates woman. He takes her from man. Scripture actually says that Eve, the first woman, is called woman because she is taken from 
man. And man is usually capitalized. Now, of course, this is a reference to Christ. But through creation and through everything that God reveals about marriage, about the nuptial covenant, in all of this, he is speaking to us certain truths we need to understand about ourselves as God's creatures made in his image and likeness, about the communion of persons for which we are made, and how marriage itself as an institution is a sign of that covenant God makes with man. In fact, the institution of marriage, which is instituted at the very beginning of time, Christ himself elevates to a sacrament. So marriage becomes a sign and instrument of God's life in the world. But God is the author of marriage. He defines it. He establishes it according to his truth, his order, his wisdom. Man is in no position to redefine marriage. This is a battle going on in the world today. And the church is constantly reminding the world, no one can redefine marriage as God has defined it in its original sense or way. The church can't redefine marriage. She must proclaim the truth that God has revealed about marriage from the very beginning. Now, in instituting marriage, God already was speaking to man about the marriage, the nuptial covenant, that he has had in mind for us from the beginning in creating us. God is love. And in many ways, throughout divine revelation, he speaks to us about that love. For example, God compares his love to a father's love for a son. He speaks to Israel in this way. And in fact, he lets Israel know that they are a chosen child or son of God. God already begins in the Old Testament to speak about himself as father. But it is a revelation that will not be completely explicit except in the son, in the revelation of the son. God also says that his love is stronger than a mother's for her child. Israel must have wondered what kind of love that would be. Because we tend to think that a mother's love is so strong, nothing can break it. A mother will step in, she will give her very life, that her children might have life. She constantly intercedes. She works for her children. She is always, even after the children have grown and been emancipated, so to speak, from the household, the mother never stops interceding worrying about, being concerned for, trying to provide for the needs of her children. And yet, God says, his love is stronger, more lasting, more faithful than a mother's love for her own children. God also tells Israel that he loves his people more than a bridegroom loves his bride. What kind of love would this be, Israel must have thought that God says his love, that he loves his people more than 
A bridegroom loves his bride. Through the prophets, God spoke in many times and places about his love for Israel, who is presented as a bride, a kind of bride, a chosen beloved one of God. Now this, of course, is in preparation for the revelation of the beloved one, the Son, in whom we will become brides of God. But in the Old Testament time, Israel, even though she was that beloved one, that chosen bride, she was not always faithful to God. This is why the prophets spoke of her in terms of the unfaithful wife, the unfaithful bride. Now, we are unfaithful as human beings in virtue of the fall. Adam and Eve were unfaithful to God. They did not remain true to the nuptial covenant God had in mind. They struggled even in their own marriage and family life because they turned away from God, the one who was establishing them in an eternal covenant. That was God's plan from the beginning. Now through history, God continued to call Israel to faithfulness, but she would turn away. She would have terrible periods where she would be unfaithful. And because of this, she defiled herself, as the Lord told her. She became weak, and she sort of fell into ruin, so to speak. Israel well understood that when she did not obey God's laws, she became morally weak, spiritually weak. And the aggressive neighboring pagan nations would come in and oppress her, conquer her, ravage her land, reduce her to nothing. And Israel would suffer greatly because of this. She would go into exile. Literally, her people would sometimes be exiled, but even when they were not, when they remained in their own land, they were so oppressed that they felt as if they lived in exile. And God told them through the prophets, it was because of their infidelity because the bride had not remained faithful to her husband, as God says through the prophet Hosea, but was always chasing after other lovers. That is to chase after sin, to be attached in our heart to things, to creatures, other than the one love who is God. Through the prophet Isaiah, God reveals some amazing things then with regard to the sending of his son. And he speaks in a language that, that would have stunned Israel. What he says to Israel is that, in great compassion, I shall take you back. Because Israel, of course, felt rejected by God. She felt this because in her sin, she felt she was lying in ruins, so to speak. And he says, in, in my great compassion, I shall take you back. In my everlasting love, I have taken pity on you. He tells Israel, your creator is your husband. Your creator is your husband. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. 
the one called God of the whole world. Now Israel understood a little bit about this image that she was God's bride. But through the prophets, God begins to speak in a very explicit and definitive way about the fact that she is bride to him, that he will deliver her, he will come to her and be her redeemer, her creator himself, God of the world, will be the husband of Israel. Now, she would not have been able to understand this. The elders, the Jewish elders, the scribes, the doctors of the law, the priests must have studied these passages and pondered how they would possibly be fulfilled. God says to Israel, no more will your land be known as forsaken. And when we read that in the prophet Isaiah, the word forsaken is capitalized, like a name, like a proper noun. She understood through the prophets that she had made herself through sin the forsaken one. She had broken covenant. She had turned away from God in her infidelity. He said, no more shall you be called forsaken. No more shall your land be called desolate. Instead, he said, you shall be called my delight, and your land shall be called the wedded. God goes on to say, for Yahweh will take delight in you, and your land shall have its wedding. Now, the land of which God's speaking, of course, is the promised land. Everything in the Old Testament that has a literal and historical context has this as a sign pointing to an ultimate reality, which is heavenly, which is spiritual. So while there is a promised land that we speak of in the Old Testament and a promised land in the New, the promised land in the New is, we can speak of it in a number of ways. It's baptism. The promised land is the church. The promised land is our life in God. But the definitive promised land is heaven. But there is another way we can speak of promised land, and it is this. God has created us in his image and likeness. We are soul and body. We have been given a land God has set aside, has promised, has given to us a land which is our inheritance. Now, Israel always wanted to come into full possession of her land, just as we do. Because we are not yet in heaven, we have not yet come into full possession of the land that God has given us. We have concupiscence, for example. We're limited. We're weak in our nature. Oh, how we wish that we could be in full possession of ourselves, soul, and body at all times. But this is the journey of, of grace, the life of grace. So that land, when God speaks of the fact that our land will have its wedding, that refers to the ultimate land, heaven, the promised land, the wedding feast, of the Lamb and the resurrection of the body. Because when we are raised up, we shall, our souls shall, come into full possession of the land which God has given us. 
we will then fully possess our own inheritance. Finally, the Lord says to the prophet Isaiah, as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your builder marry you. What an amazing image. As a young man marries a virgin, so shall your builder marry you. God speaks of the fact that in this betrothal, in this nuptial covenant, which we enter through baptism, we ourselves, in spite of our sins, become virgin in that, because our builder is making us new. And that's why St. Paul, when he writes in his letter to the Corinthians, he said, the jealousy I feel for you is God's own jealousy. For I gave you all in marriage to a single husband. He is speaking of baptism. He is speaking of all the people he baptized. He is saying, I gave you all in marriage. I know what this meant to a single husband, and that husband is Christ. You were virgins, pure, presented to Christ. This is why in baptism we wear the white garment of purity. When we consummate that marriage feast at our First Holy Communion, when we receive the Eucharist, we come forward as another little bride of Christ. And finally, we come forward to the altar of God the final time on earth at our death, when we are rolled forward down the center aisle of a church in our casket, dressed in the white garment, the funeral pall, as the church presents us to God. And that is our entry into eternal life, the wedding feast of the Lamb. So all that God revealed about nuptial covenant and marriage under the Old Testament is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the one and only bridegroom. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be continuing the topic, Bride and Bridegroom of the Covenant. And now, back to Dr. George. There is only one bridegroom, one head of the household of God, and he is Christ. This is one of the reasons that marriage, which reflects the truth about God and man in relation with God, that there can only be one head of a house, one head of a family, one head of a body. A body of a living person, a body that is living cannot have two heads. That's a monstrosity. We have one head. If there is one bridegroom, then all those united to Christ in the nuptial covenant must be our brides. We are all brides, male and female alike. All the members of the body of Christ are brides of one bridegroom. Remember what John the Baptist says when he is preaching in the desert 
and he is proclaiming the baptism of purification of repentance for sins because he's preparing for Christ and the sacrament of baptism. But people are amazed by him. Both the Jews and the Gentiles were drawn to him and went out to hear his teaching and to receive the baptism of repentance. And they began to wonder, could he perhaps be the Christ? And he says definitively, he answers what he knows is in their heart and mind. He says, I am not the Christ. I am the one sent to prepare the way of the Lord. It is the bridegroom who has the bride. He says the bridegroom's friend, he is speaking of himself, his best man, so to speak, an attendant, one who is an attendant of the wedding. He says the bridegroom's friend who stands and listens to him, he is listening to the bridegroom, is filled with joy at the bridegroom's voice. The best man takes his cues from the bridegroom. He is there to bear witness to the bridegroom, to await the bridegroom, to prepare the way of the bridegroom. He waits to hear his voice. And when he hears that the bridegroom has come, he is filled with joy. This is why he says, this is the joy that I feel, because he has heard the bridegroom's voice. He has seen the bridegroom. He announced in the presence of many people when Christ came to him at the River Jordan. He announced, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, this is the joy I feel because he has heard the bridegroom's voice, he says, and it is complete. He knew that his time, his mission on earth was coming to an end because Christ was now being publicly revealed. Christ himself, in a number of places in the Gospels, in his teaching, reveals himself as the bridegroom. We remember when the Jews go to him and they ask him why his disciples do not fast, because their disciples do. It's the tradition of the elders. But remember, Jesus is revealing something new. And what he tells them is that the bridegroom's attendants cannot fast as long as the bridegroom is with them. He is revealing himself as the bridegroom. He says, but when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. Remember the parable he tells about the ten wedding attendants or ten virgins. You will see the word virgins in some translations. Now, they all have lamps, but some have let the oil run out, the oil of grace, of holiness. They're not prepared. They're dozing. And they're all waiting for the bridegroom, but as Jesus says, it seems that he takes a long time in coming. But all of a sudden it's announced the bridegroom is here. Five who have been sensible have oil for their lamps. They made sure to always have oil for their lamps. But there are five who are foolish. They do not have oil and they go off and leave and miss the bridegroom. The bridegroom comes, they go into the wedding feast and close the doors so that when the foolish ones come back, they have lost the privilege. They have lost the chance to go into the wedding feast because they had no oil for their lamps. Jesus is speaking of himself as the bridegroom who comes at an hour when we do not expect it. We remember also the words with which Jesus begins one of his parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king 
who has a great feast for his son's wedding. Now that's the father who is preparing a great feast, the wedding feast of his son, who is the Lamb of God. St. John, in receiving the visions that he records in the book of Revelation, towards the end of that book, speaks of how the angels, there were seven angels, revealing what God commanded them to reveal. And he says, one of the seven angels said to me, come, and I will show you the bride that the Lamb has married. Now, in a certain way, we can say the whole vision, the whole book of Revelation, ultimately is about this. It's about the culmination of the nuptial covenant. It's about the wedding feast, the realization of it in heaven. And so it's late in the book, chapter 21, when this occurs. And the angel says, I will show you the bride that the Lamb has married. St. John says, So the angel took me to the top of a very high mountain and showed me Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride dressed for her husband. This is the church. And he said the holy city was absolutely radiant. He says the holy city had all the glory of God, and it glittered like a precious jewel of some crystal clear diamond. It must have looked like the, the brilliance of the transfigured Christ. The holy city must have been blindingly radiant in its glory. This is his vision of the wedding feast of the bride and the bridegroom. Now, we turn at this point to what St. Paul says in chapter 5. He addresses wives and husbands. We return to something we said earlier. Earthly marriage is a sign reflecting truths about God and the nuptial covenant he has in mind for man. Just as with all that God orders and institutes on earth, he is speaking about the mystery that we are called to enter, but God wants us to understand it, which is why we have to get the sign right. We have to live according to the order which God has ordained in order to enter the mystery and in order to proclaim that mystery to the rest of the world. So if we dilute the truth or distort the truth or try to redefine the truth, everyone is going to get it wrong. Many will be lost because of that. Now, God never in his plan orders something which diminishes man or woman. It is God who has made clear from the beginning that man and woman are created in equal freedom and dignity, and they are created to be helpmates, to be partners. But each has his or her respective place and roles in marriage and the human family. Now, when people get upset sometimes that St. Paul, that the Word of God, tells wives to be subject to their husbands, 
they tend to want to mollify or dilute this language. Sometimes in marriage ceremonies, not in the Catholic Church, but in marriage ceremonies, the language is sort of rewritten by people to make it more, more likable, more acceptable. But we can't do this because it's the Word of God. People tend to pass over the very first verse of this section, verse 21. And what is it St. Paul says? He's speaking to both husbands and wives. He says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. To one another. He goes on to say, yes, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Why? Since Christ is head of the church and saves the whole body, so the husband is head of the wife. And as the church is subject to Christ, so wives should be to their husbands in everything. Pope Pius XI, in speaking of this, says, If the husband is head of the domestic body, then the wife is its heart. If to man has been given primacy of authority, then the woman must and should claim primacy of love. It's profound. It's beautiful. Now, in recognizing the authority of the head in the Christian family, the Christian family is teaching its children, the whole world, about the authority of Christ our head over us as his body, the church. But he's not a a cruel or harsh or overbearing kind of head or lord or bridegroom. He is kind and treats us mercifully and is our partner, so to speak, a divine partner throughout our life. God manifests, John Paul II says, manifests the dignity of woman. If People tend to think that God has shorted women by saying they should be subject to their husbands. He reminds us that God manifests the dignity of woman in the highest possible form when he assumes flesh, when God becomes man, by assuming the flesh of woman, of Mary, the mother of God. He elevates woman to an incredible dignity in becoming man. Now, if it seems that women have something difficult to do, let us look at what the Word of God commands of men. He says, husbands, you must sacrifice yourselves. You must give your lives for your wife. You must pour yourself out totally. Why? Because Christ did this out of his love for his bride, the church. In other words, what both husbands and wives are doing is they are modeling the love, the fidelity, the service of Jesus Christ to each other, to their children, to the whole world. There is great gain in this. This is why after explaining the whole of it, St. Paul says, that this meaning has great significance. Everything he said about wives and husbands, about Christ in the church, he says it all has great significance. What I am speaking of, he says, in its final analysis, is Christ and the church. 
So the church, in speaking of this, reminds us that now that we are members of Christ's body, now that we are all brides, men and women alike, the baptized person no longer belongs to himself or herself. We belong to Christ. We belong to him who died and rose for us. So from now on, our obligation is to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ and to serve others. We are in the service of love. It is by following Christ, renouncing ourselves, and taking up our cross every day that spouses will be able to receive the original meaning of marriage and live it in Christ, the Church tells us. We will be able to receive the original and full meaning of marriage and live it with the help of Christ. This is then the great mystery that St. Paul is talking of, so that husband and wife, man and woman, should reflect the order and unity of Christ's mystical body. St. Augustine says, of Christ. As head, he calls himself bridegroom. As body, he calls himself bride. We are one with Christ and one in Christ. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering the Fourth Commandment, and then she will be moving into the Armor of Christian Warfare. And now, back to Dr. George. After speaking of the love and honor which husbands and wives owe to each other in Christ, St. Paul now turns his attention to the love and honor which children owe their parents in Christ. And in fact, we are speaking of the fourth commandment. One of the Ten Commandments God himself reveals commands of all. Now, the fourth commandment is the first one of the second tablet. There are ten commandments, and if you've ever seen a picture of Moses holding the ten commandments, on the first tablet are always three, because those three are about love of God. The other seven are on the second tablet, because they are about love of neighbor. Now, God could have put them in any order he wants, but he puts them in the order for a reason. And as the Church explains to us, God has willed that after him we owe honor to our parents. The first three are about God. Next, he speaks to us about the honor, the respect that we owe to our parents. Why? Because parents collaborate with God in a particular way. They collaborate with the Father's work. Parents, after all, have given us life. Now, all life comes from God, but they collaborate in a unique way in bringing new life into the world. Parents are growing the kingdom of God for him and with him through the fruitfulness of children. It is parents 
who hand on to us the faith, who teach us about God, who transmit to us divine revelation, teaching us as their children. To parents have been entrusted God's own authority. He has vested them with his authority, so they're representative of God in a certain way in family life. Now, God has addressed children specifically in the fourth commandment because this is the most universal of all relationships. Every person on the face of the earth is a child of parents. Everyone has parents. It's the one relationship that's absolutely universal. But there's another aspect. We are all children of God the Father. So through this part of his order, he again is teaching us about himself and about who we are in relationship to him. Now, family life, the family is the original cell of social life. It's the core, the cell of all social life. We are social beings. We have to get the truth about family life right if we want the world to develop rightly. There are big problems when we try to, when we either try to redefine family or when through sin, family life deteriorates, breaks apart. It wreaks havoc. It resonates down throughout all the orders of society itself. This is why the Christian family in particular must be a sign in the world and an instrument also of God's truth and God's love. Therefore, the Christian family has a singular importance in the church. The church is keenly interested in family life and speaks to this all the time. What is a family? A family is a communion of persons. Just as marriage is a communion of persons, family life is a communion of persons. And in fact, the family, the Christian family, is a sign and image, the church tells us, of the Trinity, of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, God is telling us, you are made for a communion of persons. Even unbaptized people, even pagans, understand in a natural kind of way, they gravitate toward the institution of marriage and family life. People join together in little cells, families, and families then join together in small communities and villages in towns, and eventually they form kingdoms and nations. It's the way we are made because this is reflective of the family the kingdom, the nation of people that God has destined us for in heaven. So the Christian family then constitutes a specific revelation, a sign, a revealing, and realization of the communion of persons. If we do it right, we are going to show the world, illustrate to the world, the communion in one body for which we are made by God. We begin to understand the importance of filial respect, which is what St. Paul now addresses. He says, children, be obedient to your parents in the Lord. It is what uprightness 
demands. Now, all fatherhood has its source in divine fatherhood. Parents reflect the wisdom, they're supposed to reflect the wisdom, the authority of God. The foundation, therefore, of the fourth commandment is the honor we owe to God. We express this through our submission to, our obedience to, our parents. Jesus himself, Jesus, God made man. Jesus is God. He was a model of this obedience. He obeyed his own mother and legal father during his time on earth. He was that model. Why? Because he was showing us he is the temporal image of filial obedience. It was an expression of his loving obedience to God the Father. When the Lord in the Old Testament speaks to Israel about this, he says words that remain perennially true. He says, My son, obey your father's command. Forsake not your mother's teaching. This is what he is saying to the children of Israel, to the children of God. He says, And when you walk, they will lead you. And when you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you arise, they will talk with you. Now, this will be true in family life, but God has given us this word because when he speaks to his children, he is telling us, obey your father's command. We owe obedience to God our Father. We show that by our filial respect for our human father, for our parents, those to whom he has entrusted his authority for our sake on earth. He says, forsake not your mother's teaching. This is true in family life. But the mother God has given us is Holy Mother Church. We even have the Pope as our foster father. We show filial respect for these. We forsake not our mother's teaching. As St. Paul points out, the fourth commandment is the only commandment that has a promise attached to it. It has a promise. The Lord says if we do this, if we show honor to our parents, he says, you will live a long life and prosper. Now, that has its earthly form of prosperity and longevity. Prosperity of soul, longevity of spiritual life. But what he's really talking about is eternal life and eternal prosperity. He says to us then, when you walk, your father and mother will lead you. The commandments of God, the teaching church will lead you. When you lie down and rest in death, they will watch over you. And when you rise, they will talk with you. When we rise to new life in the resurrection, we will be engaged in the most marvelous conversation in heaven with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with Holy Mother Church, the entire family of God. We will be in an eternal contemplation and dialogue with our mother and father, with the whole church, with God our Father in heaven. 
filial respect trains us in the virtues. We say, well, what good is this other than being a sign of it? There is much to be gained. It trains us in the virtues, in humility, in obedience, in piety, and respect. And it reminds us also that we are not ourselves the source of truth and wisdom. Children sometimes like to think this. As adults, we like to think this sometimes too. We're not the source of our own truth and wisdom. Filial respect also opens a child's mind to God. If the parents are good parents, loving parents, they teach the child about God. Now the tragedy of this, of course, is that not all parents are loving, nurturing, caring, kind, forgiving, compassionate. Some parents are demanding. They are unreasonable in their demands. They're harsh with their children. They're oppressive. They can even be cruel and abusive, hurting the children, terribly wounding them, physically, emotionally, psychologically. The great repercussion of this is that oftentimes those children grow up not knowing God, not trusting God, not even wanting to be drawn into a loving relationship with God. And yet through all of this, if the parents fail, God will use other people in their lifetime to draw them. The Good Shepherd always knows where we are, even when we're lost. He always goes out. He seeks us to pick us up and carry us on his shoulders back home. He will not let us stay there lost. But even good parents make mistakes sometimes. And this is why the church says that as parents, we must always lead by example. And this even includes acknowledging when we have failed, asking for forgiveness. For a parent to tell a child he or she is sorry for something does not reveal weakness of character. It reveals strength of character. It reveals that they understand they are children of the Heavenly Father, and they want truth and love to reign in their household. It actually teaches the children profound things about God and about our Savior Jesus Christ, the fact that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. It teaches children about trust and honesty, integrity in the parents. A home really is a school of forgiveness. So in family life, we must strive so that it is a sign, an instrument of God's presence in our lives and therefore of God's presence in the world. The home, as the church tells us, must be a place where forgiveness, respect, trust, and disinterested service are the rule. When we say disinterested, we don't mean indifferent or uninterested. We mean that we serve others without placing our own personal interests or motives first. This is to live in a communion of faith, hope, and charity. St. Paul, in the final part of chapter 6, tells us that we must grow strong in the Lord with the strength of His power. We are caught in spiritual warfare which is spiritual. It is not merely material or temporal. It will involve, of course, the people of the world. It will involve sometimes the things of the world. But ultimately, it's spiritual warfare. This is why we have to put on spiritual armor and fight with spiritual kinds of weapons. He says, put on, then, 
the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the devil's tactics. For it is not against human enemies that we have to struggle, but against the principalities and ruling forces who are masters of the darkness in this world. Even when we are caught up in the battles of this life and with other people, what we don't always realize is that we are caught up in a battle that is going on on the other side of the veil. And the demons, in a sense, are always trying to use us as pawns in this greater battle. We are very small and we are powerless and limited except if we fight in Christ, except if we put on the armor of Christ. That is why you must take up all God's armor, St. Paul says, or you will not be able to put up any resistance on the day of evil or stand your ground even though you may exert yourselves to the full. So what is this armor like? He tells us that we must first put on truth as a belt around our waist. In the ancient days, the people would wear garments, flowing garments of a great deal of cloth. And when they wanted to be able to move, when they had to go, be active, they had to take a belt. They had to gather everything in. St. Paul says, we must do this in truth. Truth must hold everything together, gather us in, focus us, prepare us so that we can move freely and go out fighting the spiritual battle that we have to fight. We can't do it with all this loose clothing hanging all over us. We have to gather it in. He says, and for uprightness, have your breastplate be one of uprightness. Even the very image of a breastplate, we imagine that we are standing upright and ready and that we have an armor protecting our body, our heart. He says, and for shoes on your feet, the eagerness to spread the gospel of peace. We must go out with the gospel. It must be the gospel that gives us that courage to go out and engage in the battle. It's about the gospel. We must be eager to do it. We must not hold back in fear. He says, carry the shield of faith so you can quench the burning arrows of the evil one. Imagine if we have a great shield, the shield is faith, and the enemy is shooting at us all sorts of burning arrows. It doesn't matter how many of them come at us. They're nothing. They deflect off of this shield of faith, falling to the right and the left. They can't hurt us. They can't harm us. They can't touch us. Take salvation as your helmet, he says. We must put over our head the helmet of salvation. We must be under the protection of salvation. The word helmet is rooted in helm, that which governs, orders, guides. Our thought, our decisions, our mind come from the head. If everything is underneath salvation, then we cannot be harmed. Then we will do the right thing. Even if we must die for it, we still die with the helmet of salvation on our head. And finally, he says, the sword of the Spirit. We must take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And as St. Paul says in his letter to the Hebrews, the sword of the Spirit is alive and active. Imagine having a sword that was living and effective. That's what Scripture says the Word of God is. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword, because this is a sword of the Spirit. He says that it will reveal or expose 
lay bare whatever is hidden and concealed. He makes everything known. That's what the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the truth does. So, we go forward then in battle with the armor of Christ. We can fight our earthly battles, whether they are merely temporal or spiritual. And in some way or form, they are all spiritual because they are about, they're reflective of the greater battle between good and evil, between light and darkness. If we do it with armor and with weapons which are spiritual, which are supernatural, we become invincible. This is why St. John in his letter says, every child of God overcomes the world. Every child of God conquers the world. And this is the victory, he says, that conquers the world, our faith. That really is a summary of what St. Paul has just told us about the armor of God. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional materials can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the New Testament letters. Dr. George will be covering Philippians, which include the following three topics. Life and death in Christ. Second, God raises the humbled one. And third, the Lord is our boast and joy. Knowing the Scripture's Bible study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. Thank you.